Yes, finally. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses. I'm Kent Dobson. Welcome to my podcast. Uh, wow. It's been about a month since I've made a recording, if you've been paying attention. And it has been a challenging month, to say the least. COVID came to the Dobson home, and not everybody got it, but it was challenging. We had to isolate and quarantine, and the kids were home. And um, yeah, I, I went through what probably many of you have gone through. So just coming out the other side of that now, um, in addition, <laughs> basically right after the, the quarantine period ended, I had surgery for a deviated septum. If you don't know what that is, you can, you can look it up. Basically, I got a nose job. Uh, I th- hoping it would help me with uh, my breathing at night. Um, I broke my nose in, in high school, and so it was, it's, it's, it's crooked. It's still crooked. Um, but one side of my nostril was almost completely blocked and had been for a long time. So, um, yeah, that, uh, that happened. Um, and I'm still in the process of, of recovering from that. You can probably hear my voice, actually. And I'm operating, I think, maybe at 85% right now, just like mentally. I don't know, something about being put under and all that pressure and pain and my teeth still hurt. So um, hopefully it, it doesn't affect too much the podcast you're about to hear. This, I have a super awesome, I think, episode uh, in store for you. I'm talking with my friend Peter Rollins. He's from Belfast, Northern Ireland, where my dad's from. And... Uh, yeah, he's a theologian-ish. Uh, I think he would say he's a theologian and a philosopher. Uh, that's his, his training in philosophy and uh, primarily a theologian around the death of God. So that's what we, we want to talk about. I talk a bit about his work in the world, uh, the not-at-oneness uh, of reality itself. Um, and it's a wide-ranging conversation. We talk about the unconscious. We talk about Freud. We talk about Jung. We talk about where where we don't quite line up me and and Pete um and I think uh I think you'll find it um pretty fascinating and and interesting and you might have to listen uh more than once (laughs) because what Pete is saying is quite dense at times I even have trouble hanging with it uh, because I'm not a philosopher by training um in fact, English majors look down their nose at philosophy. Not really, but, um, you know, we're all about symbol and metaphor. And and Pete wants to try to say things clearly <laughs> and uh, and try to make a claim. So um, anyway, I think you'll really enjoy, uh, in, enjoy this podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for supporting me. Um, Thanks for making this podcast happen, especially my patrons. If you're a fan of the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. Share it with your friends. That's probably the most important thing you can do. Because um, I really I really enjoy this. And, um, and I really appreciate your feedback when I get it um, through my website or, um, you know, however else yeah, you sometimes contact me. So I um, want to wish you well. And, uh, yeah, best of luck hanging with Peter Rollins. Peter Rollins, hey, thanks for being here. I'm really, really glad that you said yes and are willing to come on the podcast, so thanks. Oh, man, it's so good to see you. It's been a while since we've been 
in the same room together and uh, I miss you. So it's yeah, great same. to at least see you uh, in a virtual way. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So I, I made an outline of all kinds of things we could talk about. <laughs> and um, so we'll see sort of how the conversation unfolds and we'll just see how it unfolds. I think the place I want to start is with the nature of, of your work in the world. Like, what is it that Pete is up to? <laughs> um, and, and even the question of how that has changed or evolved a little bit over time. And my, my interest, well, I'm, I'm just interested, period. But, okay, so if those of you who don't know, who don't know Peter Rollins or <laughs> maybe don't know me, how do you found this podcast? Um, I used to teach at, um, at a place called Mars Hill where I was the pastor. Um, and Pete was a regular uh, guest there in the days of Rob Bell when he was a pastor. And then, you know, when I was there and probably fizzled off after that, I don't know. Um, but I used to sit there and one part of me listening to you speak would feel like alive and intrigued and also a little bit frightened. <laughs> um, and there was a, almost a trickster element. I mean, the people were enthralled with stories about whatever, <laughs> who knows? My kids even can tell me stories that little parables and whatnot that you uh, came up with. Um, but another part of me found it also a little disturbing. Like people would say, oh, we'd, oh I love when Peter Rollins comes, we should have him back. And I, and I would think to myself, I don't know if you're hearing what he's saying. Because I'm not sure if you would want to have him back. So my question is, what were you up to? Why were you, why were you speaking at Marso? Why are you talking in, in religious places? And um, what, what, was, what were you doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, um, whenever you mentioned you might ask me this just before we hit record, it's like, oh, we could spend all day on this, this topic. Um, because, you know, there's a few ways we can go about it and they're all interconnected. Uh, one is at the level of strategy in terms of my, my work and what I'm trying to get done and how to reach large numbers of people, uh, what kind of delivery mechanisms to do that. But I'll maybe start with the other side, not strategy, but um, theory, the theoretical side. Basically, core to the work that I'm doing is this notion that in philosophy and theology is called the death of God, right? So this, everyone knows this phrase, mostly from Nietzsche, funnily enough, everyone, every say death of God, most people who don't, even if they don't know anything about philosophy, they're like, that's Nietzsche, that's Nietzsche's term. But actually, it's, um, it's Paul's term. The Apostle Paul is the first one uh, ever really in the history of the world um, to see something significant in this notion of God dying, which is philosophically at first an absurd concept, right? So traditionally, the God is eternal, unchanging, necessarily exists. So in philosophy, God does, doesn't just exist. God exists of necessity. God cannot not exist. So the idea of God dying is absurd from a traditional religious perspective. And it's also absurd from an atheist, traditional atheist perspective, because God does not exist, is not real, and therefore cannot die. Mm -hmm. But in uh, the Apostle Paul's first person to go, God dies, and there's something significant to this notion. 
then for thousands of years, nobody touches it, right? Early Christian art, early Christian poetry. You don't see much about the crucifixion. Then Luther picks it up. And Luther takes this religious concept and makes it theological. And uh, I won't say too much about that. But then after Luther, then Hegel comes along, the philosopher Hegel, and he makes the death of God into a philosophical concept. He re- what he, they say in philosophy that he raises it to the dignity of a concept. Mm. And then after Hegel, Nietzsche takes it on and Nietzsche says the death of God is an event that everyone must go through. Like it's a salvatory event. So he's kind of a reincarnation of the Apostle Paul saying that the death of God is a central event. Mm. Um, And then into psychoanalysis and Lacan, who takes us on. So I've always been interested in this concept of the death of God. And I'll be very quick here. I know I won't talk too long, but my work if you, in philosophical terms, this is like saying that reality itself has a type of antagonism within it. So whenever you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This idea of God experiencing a lack within God and then God dying, this is a coagulation of contradictory opposites, life and death, chaos and cosmos, um, the highest and the lowest. Um, All of these are combined in this figure of the cross, right? Mm -hmm. This is an absurd idea. And in my work and the work of existentialism, the work of um, psychoanalysis, the work of German idealism is to say that actually reality is contradictory. There is a not at oneness of the one. Reality is somehow in antagonism with itself. It has a quantum dimension, right? A quantum undecidability. That's what you mean by quantum, an undecidability. Yes, yes. A kind of like when we think about kind of uh, the double slit experiment in physics, this idea of light having a type of quantum position. Um, Light is wave and particle. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and that this actually is an insight into the very nature of reality itself. And then the key is this, that then to be human is to reconcile ourselves with our antagonisms and our contradictions, not to try to overcome them, Mm. but to try to enter into a space in which we can find this peace within chaos, this order within disorder. We can find that, that, that instead of trying to always overcome our our uh, contradictions, we, we flew with them. And mm. that for me is central to a radical reading of Christianity. It's like in there, this idea of the death of God is actually a profoundly Christian notion. Mm. And, um, and so to, speaking about that within a church kind of makes sense, even though professional <laughs> Christianity stands opposed to it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. See, that's what I'm saying. I, that, that, that was the feeling of, of, of dissonance and attraction that I would have just sitting there listening to you. Like, um, so, okay. And would you say that, I mean, I don't know how long ago this was, let's say six, seven years, has there been any sort of progression of your own thought along these lines or, um, what you would call your work in the world or, or how you're trying to bring that forth. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. Um, now I would say, although every thinker says this, to be honest, a lot of thinkers don't want to admit that they change. So they say, well, I've deepened my work. My yeah. work is going whatever, you know, so um, never trust the person who says that. And now that I tell you, never trust the person who says that I'm going to say it. All right, all right. <laughs> my work is kind of deepened, gone kind of like a, so I, I guess basically my work began in Belfast with a community, as you know, called Icon. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. We, we created what was called a transformance art technology. And transformance art was a way in which you would enter into the space, literally a bar, and through the use of music and poetry and ritual and spoken word, you would confront dimensions of your, let's call it the unknown known. Things that you know, but you don't know that you know, like your doubts, your yeah. fears, your, you know, so you may be full of doubt, but actually you read, every, you're, you're, you're so full of doubt that it only expresses itself in your love of apologetics, right? Yeah. So your, your love of certainty actually tells me that, oh, you're riven with uncertainty, but haven't been able to admit it. <laughs> exactly. So um, Icon was the space in which we were, we created an environment in which we could start to see ourselves as contradictory, as full of belief and doubt, knowing and unknowing, love and hate, right? That we're, we're this, that all of this is going on within us and to somehow give that space to breathe through art. So it was right there in the beginning, but then over the course of 27 years now, um, what I've been doing is developing that theory um, and getting better understandings of how we can help create technologies of transformation and, um, and seeing that in relation to uh, philosophy and theology, et cetera. So I do, I do think I've, I've been mining the same kind of like pit, the same field. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, over the last lot of years, I think I've, I've, I've got to a clearer notion of what I'm doing. Okay. Uh, say that again, technology of what? Uh, what did I say? A, a technology of self-transformation. Yeah, Was it yeah. that or something? Yeah. Technologies of, well, let's just go with that. Technologies of self-transformation. Like what? And what do you mean by the word technology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically I'm almost talking about like we, we uh, don't just get better through knowledge, right? That's a, if otherwise philosophy. I think philosophy is a type of cure. Actually, I think philosophy, you can study philosophy. It can help, but it doesn't help that much just in the same way that I can help you understand why you have a phobia of butterflies, but you still have a phobia of butterflies, right? The the knowledge doesn't dissipate the repression and doesn't dissipate the phobia. So what we need, I would argue, is technologies. And technologies are, um, can be anything like... it's kind of uh, like the, the couch in psychoanalysis is a technology. Okay. Reassociation is a technology. Yeah. Um, I, but I would even say any type of liturgical structure, uh, going to the pub every Friday with your friends, playing poker once a month with, you know, with your colleagues, going to the coffee shop, the, these rituals of life that uh, where maybe we get to talk about you know, what's going on in our lives. They're forms of, they can be forms of technology of change. Mm. So I, I guess by technology, I simply mean a systematic um, a kind of like, uh, yes, a systematized set of practices designed to have a result. And, yeah. and so, yeah, so when I talk about technologies, like I created these things called decentering practices, they are technologies designed to help you confront your unknown knowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm with you in a sense. um, These are some, I've never used the word technologies, but the sorts of things that I'm into just in terms of my own practice and also helping to invite others into dream work, active imagination, long wanders in wild places, fasting in wild places, um, certain kinds of 
counsel or speaking in group. Um, yeah, these are technologies of, yeah. that have a certain aim to them. Would you say that you, would you say that the aim is to experience then the death of God? I mean, I don't want to just summarize your work in one sentence, but is, is that the, the aim of them? That the aim of the, I would say the aim of the correct technology. <laughs> so we, we, we have, we interestingly in society, we have lots of technologies designed to help you avoid confronting yourself. You of know, course, getting, like all of them. Yeah. So all of them, yeah, basically going to a nightclub, whatever. We've got yeah. lots of technology for that. Um, yeah, but you're, you're hitting the nail on the head for me is that I think there's, and I think psychoanalysis is this actually, is a technology for confronting the death of God, um, which means um, okay, I'll say this in philosophical terms very quickly is Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, who's central in philosophy and central to my work, he comes up with this conclusion. And by the way, I won't say how he worked it out and let's even bracket out whether he's right or wrong. Let's okay. just right. say, say the statement is he says that the, the end of history, he calls it the end of history, is a moment either that's happened or will happen when we realize that none of us are undivided that all of us um, have an unconscious, basically, that, that there is no leader who has the answer. There mm -hmm. is no other that we can abdicate our responsibility to. And he calls this the end of history is the point when we run society in a way in which we don't abdicate our responsibility to some sovereign leader, where mm -hmm. we realize that we are all in this together. Now, if the end of history happens in democracy. So democracy is the non-at-oneness of the social body. We all vote, we all move together with the idea of no undivided leader, right? And if, if we say modern liberal democracy, you know, let's, let's just say the 19th century, we get to that point. Then the, the question is what happens after Hegel? What's the 20th century? And existentialism basically says uh, the 20th century is the repression of the death of God. It's the repression of the end of history. It is the fleeing from our freedom. It is our fleeing from the terror that we have to take responsibility for our actions, that there is no one way forward, whether we should break up with a person or stay with them or go to war or stay away from war to look after the people we love or whatever, that there's no one can make those decisions for us and that we actually are terrified by our freedom. And so we want to renounce it and give it away as much as possible. That's and the so 20th century. You're saying that's the 20th century. We're giving that away to whatever autocratic yes. leaders or ideologies or, or religious institutions in their present form or, or whatever. Okay. Yeah. 100%. Right? And, yeah okay. and that's why, that's why Nietzsche comes up after Hegel and says that the funny thing is whenever Nietzsche tells a story of the death of God, it's a parable he tells. Mm -hmm. um, the madman in the parable is talking to people who don't believe in God. He's talking to humanists and scientists. He's talking to okay. people who don't believe in God. And <laughs> Nietzsche is basically saying that, you know, God has died, but you don't realize it. And he even has this beautiful uh, metaphor. He says, after the Buddha died, the it is said that the shadow of the Buddha remained on a cave wall for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. We must not only get rid of God, but also the shadow of God. And so Nietzsche's whole claim was that after the realization that we are, we have to embrace our freedom. Um, we, the shadow of God means, yes, we just, we renounce it. We hide from it. Just like the person who's full of doubt reads apologetics, right? We, mm -hmm. we, we look for leaders who we can give our freedom over to. We, um, we renounce our freedom. So anyway, yeah, that's the 20th century. And mm -hmm. then 
psychoanalysis arises as a technology to help us encounter our freedom. So precisely Freud comes up, and Freud's not a philosopher. Um, uh, he doesn't overly like philosophy, but he is actually um, responding to that philosophical fleeing from freedom, where the, through analysis, one comes to understand that I have got ambivalent feelings um, about my family, about my people I love, about myself, and that somehow I have to navigate that ambivalence rather than split it and put all of the bad stuff into somebody and keep all of the good stuff for myself. You know, projection and projective identification and schizo, paranoid schizoid positions, all that stuff. Okay. Time out, time out. Um, so are you saying something like, because you use the phrase the not at oneness. Um, so are you saying that Freud is saying that we're now being asked to experience our not at oneness in a way we haven't before. Is am I getting that right? Yes, pretty much. It's pretty much like yeah, well, absolutely. So Hegel's whole philosophy is that we are always trying to overcome contradiction. Hmm. So every time we come to some sort of contradiction, we try to overcome it. But Hegel's big insight is that every time we overcome a contradiction, we actually go into an even deeper contradiction. <laughs> and, <laughs> no and, kidding. And, yeah. And so actually, weirdly, the process is not away from contradiction, but deeper and deeper until the fundamental insight. And here's the fundamental insight of Hegel is eventually, and it takes a lot of work to get there, you get to the point where you realize that you can't overcome contradiction because contradiction is part of reality. Hmm. And he calls this absolute knowing. And by the way, there's different names for it. So in, in, in politics, you can say it's democracy, the not at oneness of the social body that generates social forms. In biology, it's evolutionary theory, the not at oneness of the biological organism that creates complexity. In uh, mathematics, it's the incompleteness theorem that mathematics um, falls into its own internal contradictions where there are true things that cannot be proven. Mm -hmm. In philosophy, it's absolute knowledge. In, um, and in psychoanalysis, it's the unconscious, which is consciousness is not at one with itself. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Good Lord. Okay. Um... So obviously millions of people are just signing up for your programs and reading your books and <laughs> getting right in line. So they'll walk toward the not at oneness of, uh, of reality itself. So, okay. Um, now like many things were occurring to me as you were speaking, I'd like to kind of go backwards a little bit because something was happening in Christian circles. I don't know if you would consider, well, you were in and out of Christian circles. It doesn't matter what, how, how you might identify yourself, but um, you and I were both uh, speaking inside the, the, um, the container of Christianity, at least for a while. So um, what do you make of what people are calling the deconstruction of faith? Like this is, this was, this was a thing for a while um, that I'm, quote, deconstructing my faith. Um, my faith is unraveled. That's a term I would use, unraveling. But what do, you, what do you make of this? How is it related to what you're talking about, or is it not? Um, or how are people conceiving of sort of the deconstruction of faith in sort of popular circles, and how might you make some distinctions between that and what you're talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. And so two things here. So one is um, prag pragmatics. I am actually, although I'm a philosopher, um, as you know, I'm kind of developing a, a 
type of community and a type of practice. So I, I'm interested in strategy. So one thing is delivery mechanism, a thing called the emerging church that you know about and men, some of your listeners might know about was, a, was an early form of what you're describing. Groups of people within what I call confessional Christianity um, beginning to uh, show what can be called epistemological humility. So the humility about their knowledge claims, yeah, yeah. beginning to ask questions, beginning to have doubts yep, and yep. seeing that as not necessarily a bad thing, um, even a good thing. And that was a great way in for me, for, for my work. Great way in because it, we're talking about doubt, complexity, <laughs> ambiguities, opening up stuff that, that people are starting, people are reading the mystics. And this is a, a large movement within and around evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference is, and, and uh, is what I'm going to make a philosophical distinction between epistemological humility, which basically, as you know, means I am humble about what I know, right? Yeah. There's a, yeah. I can't know everything, right? Of course, I can't know everything. Let's have a bit of humility in what we know. And what's called ontological humility um, um, or unknowing and ontology, meaning the nature of reality itself. And basically there's a move that i want people to make isn't is that and it sounds crazy to say it, but it's the difference between kant and hegel and philosophy is of course there's things that we don't know and we'll always be learning however the most radical insight of philosophy is that not that we don't know the absolute but the absolute doesn't know itself mm. um that god is not unknowing or unknown god is unknowing God is not just unknown to us. There's something about ultimate reality that that is undecidable, that is quantum. And that's the move I want to make. And so I was able to kind of enter into what's called these deconstructive communities within evangelical or confessional Christianity. But ultimately, it's not enough. Um, And I'm trying to kind of like move from an epistemological unknowing to an ontological unknowing. And that's where parotheology comes in. Do you, do you want to kind of do, should we unpack that a little bit more? Or? Well, I mean, I don't know how we can just leave it there. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> go <Yeah>. ahead. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah. Um, it's kind of like, so for a lot of people, they start to question their, it's almost like you can question your faith or your faith is a form of questioning. Those are two slightly different things. So to question one's faith is, is to think faith is a set of beliefs and you have a certain kind of like uh, position towards it of uncertainty. Now, by the way, that's not what religion is at all. This is where I'm very conservative. I go like, if religion's anything, it's people giving themselves 100% to something that they don't know uh, intellectually, right? So if, you're, if you have belief, but it's not like, like love, you don't really love someone if you're not willing to, kind of give up everything for them. There's something very destructive about love. (laughs) Um, uh, If you're able to walk away from somebody very easily, it's not really love. In the same way with religion, for whatever whatever religion it is, if you just kind of think about it as this is the way I see the world, um, it's not really that sense of this is something that I'm going to sell everything, you know, like St. Francis of Assisi getting rid of even the clothes that he wore. There's something very radical about religion and Soren Kierkegaard understands that uh, yeah. Kierkegaard is very much like religion is a demand it demands everything like love mm-hmm. so how do you reconcile this how do you reconcile fundamental unknowing about reality with this fundamental commitment but my argument is that 
that we can come to a knowledge and a knowledge of something that, that is fundamentally unknown, that we, we do come to this understanding that there is, that A does not equal A, that reality is in a sort of antagonistic relationship with itself. And that's a knowledge claim. And that, and, and faith for me is about living that contradiction. And by the way, that's what Kierkegaard means. See, reason, can, uh, just as an aside, the reason why Kierkegaard is so interested in Abraham and Isaac, right? Mm -hmm. Is Kierkegaard hates the notion that religion is a wisdom tradition or an ethical tradition, right? Kierkegaard says, say what you want about Jesus, but don't ever say that he was wise or ethical, right? They're like, they're like swear words. <laughs> like, you know, um, why? Um, why, why, why is he so averse to that? Because well, you're probably about to say, but go on. Oh yeah. Well, and this will bring us into, because this is where I think some maybe differences between us will kind of arise, hopefully productively, but <laughs> his, his, his meaning is that that there's something about religion that is a projectile, not a projection. There's something about it that destroys our notion of what is right and wrong, good and bad, wise and unwise, who's in and who's out. This is, this is a very Lutheran notion, actually, is that, that it, there's something, always foolishness. There's a foolishness and a scandal to religion that that's actually central to it. It's, that, the scandal and the foolishness is not its mistake. It's, that's actually its highest purpose. Mm. And that's incredibly hard to think, right? That's incredibly hard to think. That's why confessional Christians reject it, new atheists reject it. That's where the one thing they, they find agreement in is either, you know, uh, Christianity is absurd and that's why you should reject it, or it's not absurd and that's why you should accept it. Mm. Kierkegaard says Christianity is absurd and that's exactly why you should accept, mm. <laughs> accept it, right? Mm. That mm -hmm. is a very counterintuitive position to take mm -hmm. um, initially. <laughs> um, so why was I saying that? Oh yeah. So when Kierkegaard says that Abraham is the father of faith, what he says is Abraham is not a wise man or an ethical man. He starts off fear and trembling by saying that no preacher could make that story into a story of ethics or wisdom. Right. Yeah. Like as in if someone in the congregation, it's appalling, said, it's appalling, yeah. appalling, it's appalling. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so if someone in the congregation said, well, I heard a voice saying I should kill my kid. The pastor <laughs> who just preached the sermon would say, you would say, go to the police, right. Or go to the, yeah. go to the psychiatric unit. Right. Yeah. So Kierkegaard starts. And by the way, he starts wonderfully provocatively by just pointing that out. His, his desire is just that you, the reader goes, this is an insane unethical and foolish story, mm -hmm. absolutely madness. And then he goes, so why is he called the father of faith? Why is faith connected with a story that is fundamentally unwise and unethical? Now, there's lots of people who have tried to make it into a wisdom and ethical story. There's, there's lots of like, uh, lots of very- Explanations, yeah, yeah, exactly. Explanations, you know? But Kierkegaard says, well, what if, what if what makes Abraham the father of faith is he believed that he was going to lose his son and that he wasn't mm. simultaneously. He was able to hold these two positions somehow together, life and death, chaos and cosmos, that, that, that somehow this person in the story and in, in whatever is able to somehow both, both have these, and that's what, what Camus calls the absurd, and then basically that leads to the notion that faith is a commitment to the absurd. It is a commitment to a central contradiction within reality. And that is symbolized by the crucifixion mm -hmm. where God dies. 
Mm. But that, there's a lot in that. Right? But yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, dear Lord. Okay. Um, but you, you you can start to hear why I'm a little bit concerned about kind of Jungianism. Yeah, you might. Because, yeah. Because before we talk about Jung, because that would be interesting. So um, let's talk a little bit more just about the word unknowing. Um, because one of the things that you, uh, I don't know, skipped a little bit in your brief history of humanity, um, <laughs> were the mystics actually. Yes. And so where do they fall in? Where's, where's a book like the cloud of unknowing or John of the cross? Because so John of the cross says something interesting. He says that eventually God weans us from God, which I think is not Maybe you would might want to make a distinction between what he seems to be saying, which I think is a fundamental unknowing. If you want to get close to God, it's time to enter the, the fundamental unknowingness of life. Or the cloud of unknowing would say the same thing. It's time to enter the darkness. It's time to, to forget um, even concepts at this point. So what's the relationship between some of the mystical seeds that were planted? Uh, because first of all, my my understanding of a mystic is someone who's come to experience something. And, and of course they're writing about it in some sort of like poetic way, but the, they're not philosophers in the sense of they're trying to work something out. The, the, the situation is reversed. They, they're experiencing something out of, and they're speaking out of that experience. So what, what do you, what would you say about the mystics that point to the unknown? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So mystics were very important to, definitely a lot of my work, especially my first book, which is very influenced by my yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I would say, yeah, the, the, the greatest of the mystics here are people like St. John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart, Suda Denisius. Um, they, they're central in the unfolding of what we're talking about. Now, if, if I was to be kind of controversial or being reductive for a second, because sometimes you have to be reductive to say something in a five yeah. minutes, um, I, I would... I, I do think all the atheism for Lent, as you know, and atheism for Lent is an attempt to bring people through this experience of you try to overcome a contradiction and you enter into a deeper contradiction, right? So the whole point is over the six weeks, you, you move through these different types of contradiction until you get to an end point. Hmm. Now, if I was to chronologically put the six weeks into six positions, let me try and do this. And it's going to sound a very strange chronology because some of these movements are going to be in the in the present, some of them in the past. Right, fine. Say, uh, yeah. But move one would be religious Christianity or religious, sorry, tr uh, religious religion. So let's call it superstition even, where God is a being like us. God is some supreme intelligence running the universe. So that's, the, that's that position. Then I would say new atheism. And what we see as new atheism is a type of- A rejection of that. A rejection of that. And it's a weird rejection because in a sense, it, it kind of like, um, yes, it's the antithesis. It draws out the contradictions within it at its best. At its best, new atheism actually like succeeds in critiquing that entire position. Mm -hmm. Then after that comes the standard mysticism that we know, which I think takes on all the new atheist critiques accepts all those new atheist critiques and then but yet draws out then this other dimension um of what's called the beyond of being right this mm -hmm. otherwise than being um so that's the third then i would say out of that comes the materialist 
or the, the masters of suspicion, people like Marx, Feuerbach, Freud, whatever, because they then critique. Um, they they kind of like uh, draw out a critique of mysticism. Mm. Uh, mostly one of their critiques of mysticism is simply that um, uh, the more out there God is, then the less interest that is to real life and real justice and real mercy. And so a lot of them kind of talk about what religion's really about is actually very human things. It's about how do we feed people? How do we look after each other? So they move into that. Then there's the existential theologians, people like Paul Tillich. And then finally, we enter into some contemporary debates um, in uh, people like Slavio Šizek and, and whatever. So what I would say is the mysticism is part of this movement of, 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 of kind of like a, this contradiction. Of yeah. yeah. But I would say this, and this is what makes it not like something in the past mm. is the best of every movement isn't limited to one point in time. So yeah. the greatest of the mystics like Meister Eckhart and St. John of the Cross, I think perceive some of these things that we're talking about right now. Mm. Um, but, but historically, I think it's importance um, was in, um, you know, you almost go that a lot of the mystics do have this notion that God is not understandable because God is a hyper present presence. God is a, a oneness, a wholeness that contains the all and everything. And that is slightly different from what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, how is it different? I mean, um, if, is it different in the sense that whatever we mean by the oneness that contains everything also contains the the contradiction thereof or that's not exactly the right way to say it but um well what it, maybe make the distinction yeah and th this this brings me down to um you know maybe the differences between myself and some of my friends um is that you know this sounds like a very small distinction this is inside baseball here right now <laughs> um but if one is saying that contradiction is contained by the one that is okay. different from yeah. saying yeah. contradiction that contradiction is with is um is, is, the, one. The, is the one yes that's it so and, and they're very small distinctions but this is where i i kind of say that it's not that the one contains everything it, the one the, yeah the one does contain everything but what what is but it is um it's not that it contains antagonism it is antagonism Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, now, now we're getting to the really light part of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's, it's almost like the difference between, between Einstein and Niels Bohr in some respects, like Einstein, when he said, God does not play dice, like to simplify, he's basically saying that this quantum undecidability um, has a deeper structure. Uh, there cannot be a type of incompleteness that is part, that is reality. There has to be a deeper structure. And Niels Bohr comes in and says, "No, reality is um, not at one with itself. That okay. there is there is that's the deepest insight. Like there mm -hmm. is no that's the greatest insight one can have." And so this would bother the um, new atheist or the sort of secular humanist. Yes. Uh, besides many others, in the sense of, well, we just don't understand it yet. Whatever the one is, we'll get to the point where uh, the next Einstein will have the right equation and 
the map will become clear. Yes, this is absolutely so. My, I, our friend, actually Bart uh, Campolo, I always have this argument with him because he can never understand why I'm so critical of humanism, right? But humanism is basically the notion that God is a projection of ourselves. So if you read Feuerbach, who I actually really like as a philosopher, I love Feuerbach, but it's the, it's the core insight of, of humanism. God is a projection of our own essence. And the problem with that, and this is why Nietzsche was anti-humanist and others like him, is, is that basically it's like God was whole and complete and sovereign and not, and not at war with itself. And actually that's a reflection of ourselves. Like our, our reality is ultimately uh, not internally incoherent, right? There's, and so humanism has this dimension of the one within it. That's why evolutionary psychology comes out of humanism, right? Psychoanalysis comes out of anti-humanism because mm -hmm. evolutionary psychology basically says that everything we do has a... Um, it's programmed. It's, it came to us. For, you, can, you can chart it back somehow. Yes, there right. is no, we, we are in a sense utilitarian. There mm -hmm. is no dimension of ourselves that acts against ourselves. There is no <sighs> internal contradiction where right. psychoanalysis kind of comes out of the idea that, see, in evolution, right, contradiction happens in different ways in different registers. So in, in, in biology, it is evolution. Evolution is true. Like that's the not at oneness of a biological organism with itself. Mm -hmm. But humans have an internal world, they have a subjectivity. And that subjectivity has a not at oneness with itself. And that's why it requires a different science to understand it. And that's what psychoanalysis is. It's the science of the not at oneness of the subjective world. Whereas uh, uh, evolution is the science of, no, of not, oh, at not at oneness within the biological world, just as Got in it. physics is a not at oneness within matter itself, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah, so basically what you have with evolutionary psychologists is this fundamentally kind of humanist notion that, that, that the universe is not, does not have antagonism uh, woven into its center. Okay. All right. So let's, let's talk a bit about psychoanalysis. And I, um, as the not at oneness of the subjective realm. Yeah. Um, because this might take us to the doorstep of Freud and Jung and, and even, and, if I, if we get out of the um, way we're speaking here, just, I mean, me personally, my own personal experience of beginning to be dropped off into the realm of the unconscious. So what is psychoanalysis? What is the unconscious? Why would we need to pay attention to this? Does it even exist? Yes. Brilliant. 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 Yes. So what, and, and this, this brings us to, as I, we've talked about it as well, my, my very close friend and podcast partner has recently started studying Jung. Okay, so time, okay time, time out. You can oh, yeah. say more about that, but this is my plug okay. to listen to the Fundamentalist podcast. And I'm not just saying that because Pete's on my podcast right now. I'm saying the Fundamentalist podcast is fantastic. It's interesting. It's challenging. The topics that are covered are are provocative. It's funny. Uh, it's one of the best podcasts out there. And I, I mean that in a very straightforward way. And I'm not even a patron. So, <laughs> uh, well, I very much appreciate that. And you can sign up later. No, <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> thank you so much for saying that, man. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. So, uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, with me and Elliot on the fundamentalists, um, this Jungian Freudian thing comes out. So, that will probably come into this. But so, psycho psychoanalysis and depth psychology, as you know, are they come from somewhere similar, but are doing something slightly different. So what is psychoanalysis very quickly? I would say psychoanalysis is the 
um, how do you say it? It is an encounter. It is an encounter with your unconscious. Psychoanalysis as a technology is is where you cultivate a curiosity with your unconscious and a, a curiosity and a conversation with your unconscious. And that curiosity and conversation with your unconscious can have therapeutic effect, can, can help get rid of repetition compulsions, can help um, kind of alleviate symptoms, can help you understand the drama of your life in a better way, can help you affirm life in a, in a wider way. So it could have counter therapeutic yes. uh, effects as well. Absolutely. Um, and and the, one of the things that's different from psychoanalysis and counseling is psychoanalysis doesn't actually, it's not, it's not designed to have you, to have you a happier life. In yeah. fact, if you want a happier life, yeah, psychoanalysis is definitely probably not for you. It might be an epiphenomenon of it, but yet yeah, it's, it's not, it doesn't, first of all, give you counsel. It doesn't give you advice. It doesn't give you a shoulder to cry on. And also, yes, it doesn't necessarily make your life happier, mm. but it might make it more meaningful. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So say something now about deaf psychology. Why are these two different things? Okay. So here's my thinking and I, and let's jump into this, right. Is that depth psychology, the secrets in the word, right. Which is depth hmm. with, within, with Jung, there is this notion that the unconscious is somehow uh, subconscious. It is, it is a deep reality that one can penetrate uh, through potentially various meditations or whatever. So it's a, it's a depth. Whereas in psychoanalysis, the unconscious is not a depth dimension. It's, it exists purely on the surface. In fact, it's not a thing. The Because you actually, in your question, you said, does the unconscious exist? And I would say, no, the unconscious is not a thing that exists. It's not. So I would say, and by the way, come back to me on this, because this is where you can correct me or offer a counter. But in in Jung's writings on the unconscious, um, in his, I think it's volume seven of his collected works where he talks about unconscious, you get the sense that the unconscious is almost like a, the human seeks homeostasis and yeah. the unconscious kind of like brings up what is uh, being, what, what's missing. Mm -hmm. So in an attempt to kind of bring some sort of balance. Within Freud, the unconscious is not a thing that is in contrast to consciousness. Uh, the unconscious is the name for the not at oneness of consciousness with itself. So it, it, to use an example from Northern Ireland, there's a city you'll know it because of your connection with Northern Ireland. It's called, it's called Derry or Londonderry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one city, but it's got two names, right? By the way, have you, seen, have you seen Derry Girls? Oh, yeah, I have. I've heard it's become really big in America. That's yeah, yeah, funny. it's big. It's, big, yeah. <laughs> it's very good. It's very yeah, good. Yeah. So, yeah, well, people who are watching that, Derry Girls, perfect example. That city is one city with two names. And during the Troubles, you would get in a lot of trouble because somebody would ask you to name the city. And if you said Derry and you were talking to loyalists, you could get beaten up. And if you said Londonderry and you were talking to nationalists, you might get beaten up. So mm -hmm. you never knew what to say. So people would say Stroke City. <laughs> and this is, yeah, so, and they would talk about Derry, Stroke, Londonderry and Stroke City. Huh. This for me is a good analogy of the unconscious, the Freudian unconscious, is that is the Stroke in Londonderry. It's one city that's not at one with itself. It's not two cities and it's not one city. It's a type of city in conflict with itself. That's the Freudian unconscious. Mm -hmm. And I think that's different from the Jungian unconscious. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm already out of my league because I'm not a Jungian. Well, Jung probably wasn't a Jungian either, but um, <laughs> yeah. So um, maybe, maybe it might be helpful if I said a few things about how I think about the unconscious and you can, yes. you can take me down if you want. Um, so I'll, I'll, first of all, put it in, in very simple, I'll use Jungian terms and, and in a very simple map. Okay. So what Jung seems to be saying is that the subjective experience, the I is complex and on the surface is the persona, the mask, the face. And that's both how we peer out into the world and how the world gets in. So, or how the world sees us maybe is a better way of saying it. So that's the, the mask, the persona. And beneath that is the ego, the I, by the way, I, I didn't know this until recently that bo both Freud and Jung used the German word for I, they didn't use the Latin word ego, but that's in the translations. I think that's very interesting. It's a very interesting, like aside all this talk about the ego, blah, blah. It's not the word they were using. So it's, it, it it's already works. That's right. Like what, what the translator of Freud almost seemed to, by, by, by making it ego, makes it more technical mm. than what it was, what it was meant to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So the simple I, the ego, I might say is something just like our waking ordinary day world consciousness, the I that I'm, that's making this podcast. I am making a podcast with Pete right now or whatever. Um, and beneath that is typically what's called the unconscious, what the ego is not aware of, the, as if the ego was the tip of the iceberg and beneath it was this larger mass. And what's the mass made up of? Well, um, complexes, which are just archetypal constellations in a way, energies, complexes, um, shadowy material or the shadow. We could talk about that if we want to. Um, or the animus and the anima. Now we're really getting into really pure Jungian stuff. Um, maybe something of the soul, although the, the definition of the soul is kind of really hard to get at when, at least from my, my attempts when it comes to what Jung meant by such a thing. And then there are like something like the primordial fires, the abyss, the, the collective field out of which everything dimly emerges or dimly emanates. I, that's a quote from Deschardins, the abyss out of which my life dimly emanates, something like that. That's also the unconscious, but it has a collective dimension. It has an eternal, non-personal dimension. And that's what he called this uh, somewhere, um, the self is situated in there. The self is, con is, a, is a kind of constellation. So primordial fires, the self is somehow there. Above that is the ego and then the persona, something like that. So um, a journey into this world is, see what I really connect with just from my own, so I'm, I'm in analysis, but I'm in Jungian analysis. So, um, and also my, my interest in Jung is just my own curiosities. And, and I'm also in a program um, at Animus Valley Institute. This is wilderness experiences. But they're, they have more of a Freudian backdrop. I mean, they're not Freudian. I mean, I'm sorry, more of a Jungian backdrop, um, but they're not Jungians. So in any case, um, that's kind of where I'm, I'm coming from. But um, I wonder what that Freudian slip might mean. Yeah, exactly. And Freudians love the words, you know. Um, 
but any in any case, um, I'll just say something personal real quick, which was when I was beginning my own faith unraveling, this really is starting in Israel. This is part of what my, what bitten by a camel was about. Um, the, the idea of God, the concepts, the theology, the, the biblical narrative, this kind of stuff. Um, I thought really that was going to be the journey, you know, and then I would come out the other side somehow and either I'd have a new concept of God or I will have let go of God um, or I'll be in a new religion or I'll be in, uh, you know, with the others who have no, re- I'll be spiritual, but not religious or something like that. But what happened is that um, through dreams initially, uh, I was dropped off into this, the world of the unconscious, into the world where whatever I meant by I was the thing that I was experiencing massive confusion around. So um, I'm not just purely interested in this conversation because I want to you know, have an academic uh, sort of discourse on it, but because... I felt like what you were saying about, about psychoanalysis confronted by a reality. And the reality was part, in part my own internal contradictions. I don't know what I mean by I. And what are the fuels and energies that make up this, this experience of the thing that I'm calling my life, which doesn't f- even feel like my life on a certain level. So that's just a little bit of a personal side. So back to my like very rough elementary outline of what the unconscious is. So w- what, what did you hear and what do you not like? Yeah. So that, that's a very, it was a very good description of, I think the Jungian kind of frame. Um, and it is different from the Freudian frame, although Freud because, because Freud was obviously, he was experimenting and he was, so he, he put up a number of topologies, a number of ways of thinking about the unconscious. And, and, you know, and sometimes then would, as he developed in his work, would go deeper. And then post-Freud, um, this is where Lacan comes in. L- Lacan then really- He's takes, a French, he's a French philosopher? Yeah, French. Or a, psychoanalyst? Or, psychoanalyst, yeah, but psychoanalyst. He is, he's the philosopher psychoanalyst because he was uh, so- <laughs> so clever he's your, he's your saint he's your patron saint he is kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the philosophers really took to Lacan because Lacan was um but he also he drew out the philosophical implications of the mm. Freudian revolution okay. but yeah so what is it that's different and without then even just just contrasting let's contrast for a second and then um People can choose the one they like more. They're going to choose your one because your one sounds cooler than what I'm about to say. <laughs> um, here's the, the the Freudian unconscious, especially as it gets taken on in French psycho, psychoanalysis, um, is not a depth. There is no depth. It all happens in a plane of imminence. Um, that that the unconscious is like, um, I think it's Laplanche, a psychoanalyst said it, it's almost like whenever you've tuned your radio badly in the old days, you tune your radio and you can hear a second thing disturbing what you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Neither of them are deeper. They're both on the surface. Okay. There's, there's no you know, depth. The jazz that's, that's interfering with the news program you're listening to is on the surface. And it was um, there all along. You just, was, the, the radio dial hadn't been bumped yet. Yes, exactly. So it's there all along. And, and so Freudians, especially kind of like kind of the tradition of Freud afterwards of, of re- kind of rejects for various reasons, this notion of a depth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, the technically, actually, that's why Freudians don't go in for some of the things that, not Jungians, sorry, but people influenced by Jung go in for, which is things like psychedelics and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Nothing wrong with psychedelics. I've got no problems with them, but psychedelics as a, as a, as a cure, um, it comes from the idea that psychedelics can kind of like connect you with these deeper, deeper realities, realities. Yeah. Whereas if you're Freudian, the notion is you're telling the truth all the time in your words, it's on the surface. And what you need is not drugs. You need somebody else who's listening to your words and disrupts them by punctuating them differently and feeding those words back to you. Like a mirror. Mm-hmm. Like a mirror, like a, like a slightly, dis- like a broken mirror so that mm. you see and, and, and that's how you confront the unconscious. So you actually can't confront the unconscious without a third. You can't confront an unco- the unconscious without someone basically, because you, without knowing it, you're always projecting onto somebody. Yeah. And so someone who's trained to experience the projections and to help you see what you're projecting of yourself onto them, that's, mm. that's how the cure works. Whereas meditation is very good and psychedelics can be a lot of fun and they can connect you with something, but for, for, for a proper Freudian, they go, they're not connecting you with the unconscious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. What, and what are they connecting you with? I'm just curious then they're just what they're with. I would say using Lacanian language with the, the pre-linguistic, um, okay. what's called the imaginary. So they're, they're mm-hmm. basically, they put you into a type of experience that you had when you were an infant um, addiction. So addiction means without to addict without language addiction. Okay. So whenever you see someone who's addicted to drugs, for example, I would say they're, they, they're seeking the imaginary. They want to be before language because diction language is where contradiction happens, miscommunication, all of that. I think drugs, and this is why they're nice. <laughs> the drugs put you back to almost it's infantilism. Almost- yeah, yeah, exactly. Before even the invention of time, you know, mm-hmm. I've had a little bit of experience with drugs and whenever you do drugs, even you, you lose the, the invention of time goes, you know, you really go back, I would say to the stage of the imaginary before the symbolic, the pre-eatable is what I would okay. say drugs do. Yeah. Very, very interesting and very challenging to the, to the spiritual community right now. They're going to cancel you. I know. I've Watch got some out. friends who are very into that and I, I feel bad, but I go, oh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I it attack is... the humanists and the spiritualists both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just making enemies all over. Yes. You know, uh, well, just to, to quote another, well, both James Hollis and James Hillman have a lot to say about infantilism and spirituality and this kind of return to the womb and the pre pre-linguistic as you're calling it, the imaginal, the imaginal realm, um, the ambiotic fluid. And, and of course they're, they're trying to argue something further into complexity. Maybe that's what individuation is from a Jungian point of view, deeper into the contradictions. See what your description of, of, of psychoanalysis is like my experience in Jungian analysis, which is it's a confrontation. It's not counseling. It's not therapy. It it's disruptive. It is like looking into a fractured mirror at moments. Um, It takes dreams very seriously. I think maybe we could talk about the difference between Freud and Jung and dreams because I I, I might have more knowledge of that. Um, But in any case, it's not just that it's listening for words and what you were calling the surface of life, just little 
slips and um, ordinary day world activities are all part of where consciousness and the unconscious are in constant conversation. Um, but maybe uh, if dreams, it might be a, a way in next, but yeah, I guess I am still attracted to the notion of, of there's a depth and, and par I partly am attracted to the image because my technical training, I'm an English major. I'm biblical studies is my graduate work, comparative religion. So myths, stories, rituals, they seem to give this kind of, they, they seem to have an imagination for a depth journey. I mean, it's, it's hidden in the, the story. So part of me wants to say, okay, I, I understand what you mean about the static, that everything just is, and it's a matter of the radio dial. But I think one of the, the reasons why people, I mean, so what do you make of people saying, I want to go on a deeper journey, for example? Because part, part of me just says, there has to be some truth to that. Because aren't they saying the skimming across the surface of my life is not working very well. And I'd like to be dropped down. So, um, or do you just say, well, those are nice metaphors. How do you respond? Yeah. You know, this is, and, and, okay. I'm going to say something, well, this isn't controversial because you'll know this, right. But so in, in psychoanalysis, there's basically three buckets. Um, and these three buckets are, uh, depth psychology might not use these, but kind of psychoanalysis almost three fundamental structures. Now, in psychoanalysis and in depth psychology, I think, I'm pretty sure, DSM stuff just don't lie. It's ridiculous. No, yeah, it's right? just like <laughs> it's, DSM. It's, it's a joke. Um, yeah. but, but the funny thing is the only thing, and, and psychoanalysis radically treats people as a singular because mm. you can have the same symptom, but for very different reasons, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Right. Anyway, but there are three buckets and uh, they are neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. And okay. depending on whether you're a neurotic, a pervert, or a psychotic, <laughs> you will have like a, a, a different relationship to contradiction and lack. Now, it's, and Jung himself accepted and said, and I think it's widely raised, you know, that Jung had a psychotic structure. So, um, and you know, you look at the Red Book and all of that. <laughs> and technically, if you have a psychotic structure, you do not have an unconscious, like a neurotic, right? You, the psychotic doesn't have a, a Freudian unconscious as such. So for a psychotic individual, their, their question is, who am I? What, what am I? What is an I? Yeah, and that's, that's more like me. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, um, there's not, not that you're a psychotic. A lot of that's what you're that saying, question. Pete. You just called me a psychotic. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. No, I also do because that, that question is a lot of neurotics like who am I as well? But for a psychologist, so I suppose the difference is this a neurotic individual might say, you know, who am I? Should I be doing this job? What am I? You know, should I be a chef? Should I be a teacher? Mm -hmm. A psychotic will be like literally, who am I? Like, am I I? They will feel themselves outside of their body. They'll feel themselves maybe they're maybe they're reading a book. Okay. <laughs> and they I don't know what you're talking about. I swear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but uh, you know they might find themselves in the book or in the corner of the room or and you know you'll touch themselves so their their boundaries of selfhood are very you know fluid to such an extent that they can disassociate all of that kind of stuff i think that that jung's a lot of what jung is addressing um comes from that experience of what a subject is and a lot of his stuff about depth comes from that that experience mm. um but you're asking me what do i think about 
the depth analogy. Why do you, why am I so concerned about it? Here's the thing. Okay, here's more of a technical difference then. I think one of the best critiques of Jung is by the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss, and he's canonical, one of the greatest intellects of the 20th century, but he wrote an essay in a structural anthropology called Do... Oh no, what's it called? I think it's called The Structure of Myth. Okay. But basically what he argues, and this is the two positions on myth, and I think this brings into sharp, sharp focus the difference between the Freudian and the Jungian. Um, and it's why I'm... And by the way, all the stuff you said about Jung and in a Jungian analysis is right. I think Jung and Jungian analysis can do all of the things that I'm talking about. Um, my issue is that I think Jung started off on the right path, obviously, and then I think went a bit on the wrong path. <laughs> and yeah, so the, best, yeah, yeah. the best of, yeah, of Jung is, is in there. But, and, and I'm the other way around. I'm like, finally, right, exactly. finally the red book. Now we're, now we're talking. <laughs> I want to delve into the red book a lot more. But he, um, is that for, for uh, uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, a myth, um, you can read a myth in two different ways, basically, or you can read language in two different ways diachronically and synchronically diachronically means that language or myth go uh this a word like it say a serpent has a meaning and that meaning goes back in time and you go back and you might not be able to get back to the original meaning of that symbol but that symbol has this what's called diachronic over time it's developed and it's come to its mm -hmm. form mm -hmm. Synchronic means that language gets its meaning, not from some chain that goes into the past or into the depth. Language gets its meaning from how it's related to other words. So it's that synchronically how it's synergized mm -hmm. right, in terms of words placed in the signifying chain. Unionism tends to see language diachronically. Um, okay. I would say non-structurally, right? So non-linguistically. And that leads to notions of like if you have an image of a rat is a good example is a rat might kind of connect deeper and deeper diff different layers into your past but then into maybe some collective meaning of rat which then mm -hmm. goes into something we can't actually access but it's touched mm -hmm. but but when freud looks at the the rat man which is one of freud's kind of early uh case studies rats it's only meaning is in relation to other signifiers for the individual. Mm -hmm. So, so this is this uh, this is like why association becomes so essential in yes. Freudian psychoanalysis. Okay, All right. yes, hundred percent. Yeah, because you made a joke about that where you said why are words so important for Freudians? And you're right. Yeah. Everything's about signifiers. Everything's about signifiers for Freudians. Um, but it's because from the Freudian perspective, um, language is synchronic. Synchronic. Um, it's, it's all about how a signifier fits with other signifiers and, you know, connects with your family relations. So there is no like rock of meaning that if you go deep enough in, there's a serpent has a meaning that is trans historical, you know, trans uh, geographical. Okay. Does that make sense? That yeah, it does. I don't see why they can't, why something like both is, mm -hmm. isn't the case. Yeah. Um, I know I'm not just trying to get out of it. I, I do understand the distinction. The distinction is important and, and maybe it's even more important in what trail am I going to follow here? Like, let's say I'm working with someone or someone comes to me with a dream and it's, you know, there's a, there's a rat in it. Um, what trail am I going to follow? Um, but it does seem to be like one of the things that, um, 
I don't like just on the surface, the first time I'm really thinking about this or, or hearing it put this way about the sort of relational connection of words is actually has something to do with what's going on right now in our culture, that words are simply social constructs and their only meaning is in the social construction of things. Because there's something I find that that's like slightly impalatable about, about that to me, especially the way people use it now. And in a crass sense, you, it seems like you can sort of construct your own sort of map of meaning around the words that you use. I say the word means this. Okay. Um, so there's something about following the thread of its, of its pre-linguistic elements that seems to, it's like, like something of a color or an energy seems to come from somewhere. That, that's at least my initial response to what you're saying. No, and by the way, I, I have very similar concerns. I, my, my PhD is in post-structuralism or post-modernism. And the, so, but um, I'm very critical of, um, of the, of at least of how post-modernism has uh, taken root within um, especially America. And mm-hmm. it's a de- and I'm not a post-modernist. I'm not a post-structuralist. That's what my PhD is in, but that right. just means I know it. <laughs> it doesn't mean I am it. Um, I'm right. very critical of it. And so, yeah, I have a, a lot of, See, I share the same concerns as you. The, mm-hmm. the difference, by the way, is because I think what you're what you're talking about is a very important political issue, an, an issue that that's very fascinating. But if we bring it into the clinic for a second, mm-hmm. okay, in the clinic, it's almost like I want to figure out, and this is why, by the way, Freudians or post-Freudians use the term signifier all the time rather than word, because it's so a signifier. Is, is kind of a word, but it's divorced from meaning. So if, for example, I'm sitting down with you and um, you, uh, I realize you don't do very much, right? You sit around, don't do very much. You work at a train station and uh, you, collect, uh, you collect pens. Right? These three things, right? And I notice that as I'm talking to you, the word stationary comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, you're very stationary. Uh, and you collect stationary. Yeah. And you work in a train station, right? <laughs> Suddenly, I've, I find a signifier that, yeah. that you, three areas that are not, that you don't think are related in any way, completely different, but they're related by this weird signifier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and what I basically, what the Freudian does is they, they, they listen to what you say, not what you intend. That's, the, that's why they're fundamentalists. You don't listen to what someone intends. You listen to what they say. Right. And you try to figure out, are those signifiers connected to other realms of your life mm-hmm. that that connect it in, in ways so you suddenly you start seeing all these connections in your life that were not connected um and that's what i mean by kind of like a paying attention to the the relation of words to other words is what you start so with the rat man in German, the word rat is, is ratten, I think. It's connected to something about money and it's connected to all these. So what, what basically Freud found out is this guy who was obsessed, he'd heard about this torture where they used rats, I think, to, to eat the insides of prisoners. Mm-hmm. And his, he was in the army and his superior told him this story. And then he became obsessed with his father and I think his um, partner having this torture done to him. So Freud listened to this. And then what he realized is that... The word rats was connected to debt, disease, and indecision and love mm. because the word had these various signifying chains. And what he found is that this story of this rat torture was actually an obsession with choosing the right person in love 
mm-hmm. whenever his father had chosen the wrong person. But mm-hmm. it was all about listening to the signifiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how yeah. they relate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, okay. Let me see. You're good with time. You want to do? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm loving this. Yeah. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, okay. So let's talk a bit about dreams because, first of all, I'll give you my, my personal understanding of the difference between how Freud used dreams and how Jung used dreams. And, and also a little bit about my own experience with dream work. Um, and I'm getting this from dreams, memories, and reflection. So I'm, at least I'm trying to, I'm so out of the mouth of Jung, I'm about to say the difference between the two. So as I understood um, Freudian dream analysis, it's very much what you're describing where you're looking for new word for me, but signifiers, associations. And Jung's basic um, question was, well, well, what does that have to do with the dream? You know, why not just look at a painting on the wall or um, a cup of coffee or won't it go wherever the, the trail goes, the trail goes. So why do you need the dream? In other words, the dream is just in service of communicating the, uh, signifying relate the the relationships between the signifiers. Okay. So Jung said, well, that doesn't maybe, maybe there's something else going on where the dream itself has its own intelligence. So I want to pay attention to the dream as a whole, as it comes to the dreamer, um, as if it's a little mini myth unto itself. Um, and, and as if it's a process, um, maybe connected to some sort of uh, archetypal realm, but is, is a whole rather than used as a platform to, or a, a springboard to jump to something else. Am I right in getting that or do you disagree? No, I think you're hitting on something which if I put it in slightly different words to see if this is the same thing, is that, uh, yeah, for Freud, <clears throat> for Freud, the dream is there is no one behind it. There's no there's no message being communicated. There's right. no, right. Okay. There's nothing like that. It's purely an eruption of associations and significations that, whereas for Jung, I get the sense that he thinks that there is a type of something deeper being communicated. Mm-hmm. But my, my, my first question is then who, who's doing the communicating? Who's, well, well he would know? say the self, his answer would be the yeah. self. And you, then you would say, well, what the hell's the self? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think something like that, although um, my experience in dreams is, is not that they are messages, like as if there's a dream maker that says, okay, tonight when Kent goes to sleep, I'm going to cook up this strange fantasy and his mother's going to be involved and the cat's going to be involved. And the message is get a new cat and, you know, disown your mother. Not like that, but that the, but it should be listened to on its own terms as a, as a kind of internal story that's creating certain tensions that disrupt the ego, both the waking ego and the dream ego, the I in the dream. So I'm going around doing this. I'm going around in that, that the structure of the dream itself and the content of the dream and the images um, and the scenarios and the characters have an assert, have a certain, are meant to have a, a certain effect on the eye and, and a kind of disruptor to the eye. And um, does that make sense what I'm saying? 
Yeah. W- would you say, are you saying like the almost, because I, I remember Freud or Jung once said, once wrote, <clears throat> but I haven't read like a, you know, I've only read some of his stuff, but he said that the, 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 um, the, in the dream, a type of um, uh, rebalance is, it, is, is, is happening that, you know, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you really dislike somebody and you treat them really badly, that maybe in the dream, they will appear in a, a more grandiose way. So the dream is in a way kind of like, kind of trying to force a, a balance. A compensation. Yeah. Well, there is an element to what yeah. Jung is saying that dreams offer kind of compensations for day world or waking consciousness. And, and that's disruptive, of course, to the ego, if that's really happening. But it makes it sound like that the goal then is balance. And I don't think that's what Jung is saying. I, I don't think there's this harmonious um, at oneness. I think it might be closer to what you're saying, that there is a fundamental not at oneness to the nature of being, that there are such massive internal contradictions that, that they can't be they can't be dispelled or eliminated. And so growth, but growth looks like greater and greater awareness or integration of these des- disparate parts that don't seem to be even part of me. And this is what I find interesting about dreams and which is why, you know, sometimes I feel like the simplest way into any of this is to start paying attention to your dreams Yes, because they don't play by the rules. Whatever you want to say about them, they don't play by the rules of society, of myself, of my own ideas, of nothing. So start paying attention. But anyway, one way of thinking about it is like this, that um, the characters in the dreams are manifestations of my own unconscious coming to me in forms that I recognize. And I would say they don't have anything to do with, or rarely like someone from the day world. I have a dream about you. It's not about you. These are just manifestations of the unconscious that are coming to me in forms I can recognize, but they are elements of who I am Mm -hmm. and they need attention. And that's what I think is so, that's the simple invitation for like dream work 101. This is part of who you are that needs attention. Now you could say the attention that needs, that's needed is there needs to be a conversation between whoever, the, the Pete of my dreams and the I. Um, or it could be that the energy is contained in a character. So let's say I have a dream of a lion. I'll just make this up. I have a dream of a lion that comes out of the woods and he's got a, you know, uh, whatever. He has a certain kind of energetic quality that the eye in the dream finds repulsive or scary or dangerous, or I'm in love with it. doesn't matter. But this would be an image of something that needs to be uh, integrated, or at, at the very least, I need to be in conversation with this hidden element of who I am. So what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah. You know, a dream work, it's, it's very difficult and complicated. So I've, you know, you know, wrestle with Freud's dream work for a long time and my own dreams. The dreams are incredibly difficult to, uh, to decipher. <laughs> it's yeah. why, again, you need often a, a, another person to help sure. you yeah. associate yeah. and to, to help you kind of, um, are the subject supposed to know, by the way, a little aside is I had a dream and I told Elliot the dream and, uh, he went away for a second, came back with this knowing look in his face. And I went, Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the dream means this. And then I kind of laughed at myself because the can talks about the subject supposed to know, right? You imagine someone else knows the interpretation of your dream. 
and then I associate it with what they're thinking, but it's actually what I'm thinking because yeah. Elliot wasn't thinking anything. He didn't, he was just, he just came out from the bathroom thinking about something completely different. And I was like, why oh, do you think X, Y, and Z? And he's like, yeah. I wasn't thinking anything. So, oh, so I was thinking it, but I wasn't allowing myself to think. That's about right. It. It's yeah, like, that's um, right. It is funny whenever someone says, I know what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, and then they say something, it's, it's a very good way of telling what they think, but can't totally. allow themselves to think. <laughs> um, but yeah, so dream work is very tough. Um, because one, one, of the, one of the critiques of Freudian dream work, which is a good critique, and I think Freud would accept it, is that dreams don't actually, whenever you decipher them, often tell you anything you don't know, right? So like yeah. that's, that's a very Freudian notion, actually, is that dreams will often tell you that you're unhappy with your relationship. But, you know, you didn't need your dream to tell you that or that, you know, you, you want to move to a different country. But again, that might not be that unconscious. Mm -hmm. but, but what the dream can do is what, what for Freud, what happens is our affect, it just detaches from an idea so that I cry over an advert that has a lion in it. You're, you mentioned lions, right? There's a lion bar or something. I see a lion getting hurt in an advert and I cry uncontrollably. But then through association, I go, oh, lion makes me think of brave. And I often thought of my father as brave and my father died in this particular way. Mm. And I realized that I'm crying over the death of my father, not over this lion in the advert. So dream work for me can sometimes help us see stuff we already know, but actually help us realize that our affect, our emotional life is detached from those dimensions of ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know, but that's, that's part of dream work for me is that you, you kind of like come to know things that you already know, but you might come to um, realize that you've, dis you've detached yourself emotionally from those aspects. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I guess I would say, yeah, that's right on. That's part of what dreams do. And this is probably where you might just part ways with Jung altogether, because he says, sometimes dreams are also an encounter of the deep self. And like, I mean, Jung has a famous dream where he's in the middle of London and there's a magnolia tree. It's like dingy and dirty and there's a magnolia tree. And, um, and he realizes this is the thing that I, this is the myth of my life. And this is after years of making man mandalas and, you know, this is po just post red book, all this, what he called the confrontation with the unconscious. And so he experienced the kind of, a kind of image of a deep um, meaning. I think that's probably the best way to say it. A deep meaning that was his life. Mm -hmm. See, and that's very much different than, well, um, he kind of already knew that, but he couldn't really, he didn't really know it. And um, it, he seems to be saying that every, every once in a while you get what we could more simply called glimpses of soul or glimpses of the deep self that um, inform you on the level of meaning in a way that, you know, in a way that association might not. So am I making sense? You are, but this, this brings me back to, you know, again, like I, I think Jung was a healthy psychotic, absolutely. But the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic is, um, you know, psychotics are tyrannized by meaning. Um, now neurotics get meaning as well. They, they might look and go, "Oh, I saw a red car, and I, it, I think, well, what was that meaningful?" A psychotic individual feels meaning like without, without, basically, intuitively. They, they experience 
absolute meaning. They may not know what it means, <laughs> but they <sighs> know it means something. And, um, and I do see when I read Jung that, you know, meaning, you know, he had a very profound way, uh, experiences a meaningful world um, and is trying to kind of come to terms with that, that sense of absolute meaning. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is for a neurotic, um, <clears throat> say meaning isn't felt in the same way, you know, even if they think something means something, they can doubt it, they can ask questions about it. If, if someone's in a psychotic break, for example, and they feel that they're, uh, Darian Leader uses example, some of they literally feel that parts of their body are falling off <clears throat> and they may wrap themselves in saran wrap to keep their body together. They're feeling something absolutely real, absolutely meaningful. And, um, and you have to work with that. But anyway, but so anyway, so what I'm saying is when, when I, I say this to Elliot, sometimes it's like, like, I think, um, I think Jung did experience absolute sense of meaning but I do think that that was connected to his psychic structure mm. and it was healthy for him, but, it, but for a lot of people, it's not healthy for a lot of people. They're tyrannized by certainty and tyrannized by meaning. Um, but is that, is that sound, does that sound like I'm having to dig at Jung? <laughs> well, that's fine. I mean, that's what, that's what we're here to do. Basically I've learned that <laughs> I'm psychotic and, <laughs> and that you're neurotic and <laughs> I don't know. So, okay, let's um, let's try to land the plane here. Okay. Um, I think where how do we, how do we want to land the plane here? Um, let's come back to the question of uh, the work that you're. You have an idea. No, I, I thought I, there's maybe a clearer way I could say what I was saying, but I don't know. Do you want to keep, I'm sure I'll get it in. Have a, ha, no, have a swing at it and then I'll ask you the question. Okay, well, so coming, coming back to the neurotic, perverse and psychotic structures, <clears throat> you could say in, in psychoanalytic terms that these are all different attempts to avoid the idea that there is no big other. There is no, um, that reality itself is fractured. So for... So for an unhealthy psychotic, for example, the, the key thing is conspiracy theories, right? Mm -hmm. Psychotic individuals are always drawn to conspiracy theories. And, and the core of a conspiracy theory is that behind what you can see, there's there some is this big other reason, yes. some structure that, okay, that no one else can see. All right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's, there, and there's leftist and rightist versions of this. Exactly. And I almost do want to say something because you get canceled for saying some of them, but <laughs> you can use, you can use the, the ones that are not popular as in like fascism where the figure yeah. of the Jew, the, the Jewish Illuminati are in yeah. control of everything. Right. That's a, that's a right wing uh, conspiracy mm -hmm. theory, but these are there. So the, the psychotic, basically they, they feel this absolute meaning, this absolute big other who is everywhere and nowhere and controls everything. Mm -hmm. The perverse individual, they call it into existence. So in perverse sexuality, for example, sadomasochism, you want the other to be the big other who controls everything or who enacts the big other. So they, you bring the big other into existence. Mm -hmm. And in neurosis, um, you want to deny the fact that there's no big other. You mm -hmm. kind of constantly want to go to the, the tarot card reader and get mm -hmm. your tarot read to tell you whether you should break up with the person or not. You, you kind of have experienced the death of the big other, but, but you continue to reject the big other. So mm -hmm. those are three different relations to, I think, 
the attempt to avoid a confrontation with our freedom. I think Jung overcomes that. I think Freud overcomes it, but, but in different registers. Mm-hmm. But whether one's psychotic, perverse, or neurotic, we need to somehow, I think, come to embrace the, that, the dividedness of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, that's actually the place I wanted to maybe land, the coming to embrace the, the dividedness of reality. I mean, because... I think we're, um, we'd have to have a much longer conversation about the, about the kind of work that I'm involved in in the world, but, um, and I might use a, a depth metaphor. I was thinking about your, you have atheism for Lent. I have something called, um, um, what, like a, 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 what did I call it this year? Um, a descent. So a Lent descent, which is, a, is it's, it's definitely, and I like the Jonah story. I think there's something very fascinating. So that's a kind of mythic backdrop to, but I, I a confrontation with, um, with the death of certainty, uh, I think is, is essentially not only part of the, the personal growth that we're being asked, but I think there's something transpersonal about it where, I mean, it's like the, there's something about the 21st century that I think we're being invited to to this particular doorstep. So, um, yeah, maybe just maybe just. Uh, I know this sounds like a little bit like um, like a sermon. Like, all right, Pete. Now, um, why don't you just wrap it up and and tell us what to do now? <laughs> but but I think for those those on the doorsteps that that maybe heard are resonating or or despising. Uh, something that's that's being said here. What's one way of of walking toward uh, this this sort of work? Yeah, and you know what? I think it does preach. That's another reason why I love some religious forms like preaching because um, this stuff I think can resonate with us. And there's ways of putting this in story form and various ways that that can be very helpful and very healing. Mm. And I guess part of what what this looks like in practice is very gradually coming to realize that you are full of contradictions, love and hate. You want to leave your partner and stay with your partner. You want to stay at home and you want to go to some other country. You want to stay in your job. You want to leave it. You've got, you want to shout at somebody and also you're afraid of shouting at them. All of these things are going on. And, and that when we can't, when we're not, um, cognizant of those those contradictions and antagonisms we will then split and we'll tend to um do things like put all the bad stuff all onto somebody else and keep all this is our world this is this is yeah this is what's happening yep go on 100 my goodness (laughs) yeah um we'll so we'll tend to do projection we'll tend to another thing projective identification where it's actually you put all the good stuff the things that you are you say oh you're so brave you're you're Mm. so intelligent golden golden projections i call them yeah Mm -hmm. we're very nice and yeah and they're actually parts of yourself that you've Mm -hmm. thought maybe from your past that you had to hide because they weren't acceptable in your family and so you love the other person because of their their things, but actually they're disavowed parts of yourself. So a lot of this is about going, how do we cultivate in our everyday lives a sensitivity to these contradictions? So for example, here's a good you um you can't find the keys, you're going to visit your mom, you can't find your car keys. And then you realize, oh, this has happened a few times. Every time I'm going to my mom's, I can't find my car keys. You go, oh, maybe I do want to see her. 
Am I angry with her? I love her, but am I also angry with her? And, and, and that, that was actually the keys that let you see that. Or a, a true mm-hmm. example of a friend of mine who he, um, he's divorced and every Thursday would go to his ex-partner's house, see the kids and read them stories. And he forgot to do this one week. He was late in work and stressed. And then he forgot a second week. And there was then a third week that he forgot. And uh, I was talking to him. Yeah. Like, what's and he never forgets other things. Never forgets about meeting me or other things or work stuff. And his, his ex-partner said to him, like, do you want your kids to hate you? Hmm. And, and I asked him that question. I said to him, okay, I'm going to say it to you again. Like, do you, do you want your kids to hate you? And what he discovered was he hates himself, mm-hmm. but he denies that hatred. He mm-hmm. goes out and he parties and he gets on with life. He works hard. So he puts his hatred of himself mm-hmm. into his kids yeah. and he wants his kids to hate him mm-hmm. because that's how he feels about himself. And, and what was required was simply this little thing of going, oh, it's just forgetfulness, right? That's mm-hmm. the thing. Oh, it's, oh, he forgot. Oh, so he was just stressed at work. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's think. Is that saying something that's disavowed? And, and I think if we can cultivate this curiosity with our lives, it'll both be fascinating. You'll learn more about yourself, but also you might find yourself being able to breathe a bit more and to be able to live a little bit better. Yeah, I might add one word to it oh, because I think in um, spiritual-ish circles, mm. people often we'll use a word like authenticity, especially if they're coming up out of a religion or something. They're like, well, I wasn't my authentic self or something like that. But what you're describing is the experience of the authentic self, the part of you that, that hates yourself, that can't look at it and, and is unconsciously creating a scenario in which you experience the hatred, but in, this, in the form of, I'm going to make my kids hate me. That's, that's really like very earthy and ordinary and uh, gritty. That's a kind of gritty spirituality. Um, But you can breathe. Like you can, if you can get close to that, say, actually, I hate my mom. I'm resentful. I guess that's why I can never find my keys. It's like, it's like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm back down to earth. The, the wings, my Icarus wings melted a little and I descended. So something like that. I had, I had a, one very quick example because yeah. I, I had this with my um, guy I was living with. So one of my friends who I lived with for a couple of years and we were, you know, we lived together. We were very good friends, but, you know, sometimes I wouldn't see him for a while. And one day he said, here, Pete, will you meet us for coffee at Verve? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's go for coffee, hang out. And I put it in my GPS mm-hmm. and it, it's like th- 35 minutes away. I'm like, why is it one of 35 minutes away in a drive? But I drive to the, to the, to the coffee shop and then I buy coffee. And actually I also buy some food, which I rarely do in a coffee shop. You just get a coffee, so buy all this food. And the moment that I pay for it, the moment I pay for it, I'm like, I wonder if there's a different verve that's closer to where we live. And sure <laughs> enough, I look it up and there's one right around the corner, right? Yeah. And the, so the, again, my first thought is, maybe I don't want to meet him. Yeah. Right. Cause you know, why did I only figure this out when I was pot committed, bought all this food or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then that allowed me to go, Oh, there's a tension in my relationship with him. Mm-hmm. I go like, Oh, that's something we should probably talk about. Mm-hmm. And so just that act that anybody would make just go, oh, that was just a stupid mistake. You go, sometimes a stupid mistake is just a stupid mistake. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. 
And sometimes it's a penis, right? Sometimes yeah. <laughs> it means something. Um, and, uh, and it's that it's that cultivating that. And I think one of the things that we can definitely find agreement in, um, in, in terms of this, is that um, in, in our culture, there's this notion of people saying, what do you believe? As if we know what we believe. It's a very strange thing to me. It's like, yes. someone, it's like, like the idea that someone would know what they believe. We expend <laughs> so much psychic energy to protect ourselves from knowing what we believe. Yeah. Right? Um, and it actually coming to know what you believe is a very very painful and difficult thing. And mm. I love that verse in the Bible, you shall know the truth and truth will set you free. Mm. In the sense that, that perhaps religion at its best is not about believing a certain set of things, but helping you to come to know what you believe, mm. knowing your truth. And as you know the truth, it sets you free. Mm. Because a lot of psychoanalysis is, is literally just confronting you with what you believe. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't believe in ghosts. But then as soon as the lights are out and I hear a tapping on the window, I think there's a ghost about to eat me, right? Yeah. I don't believe there's sharks under the bed, except yeah. at night, right? And you go like, so you do believe there are sharks under the bed? Let's not, let's not try and like do cognitive behavioral therapy and stop right. you from thinking about sharks. <laughs> let's go, what do those sharks mean? What exactly. do they mean? What, yeah. what, what are they telling you about your belief that you don't even know you believe? Yeah, yeah. there you go. Well, it's been a joy. Well, I enjoyed it. It was good for me. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it so much, man. I've loved this. This is fantastic. <laughs> All always right. All right, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll hit pause here, but just, uh, yeah, thank you so much uh, for coming on and just really appreciate it. Cheers, man. Yeah. Bye-bye.